Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bccweb.com. Um, I need to tell you, actually, just before the first service, my batteries on my hearing aid ran out. And normally I keep spares with me, but I don't have any spares. And, and uh, I'm assuming that the first service were all sh- clapping and shouting at every point that I made. Um, and I'm sure you'll do the same. It was actually quite funny. As Caroline was talking over here, and she was talking about new whiners, I thought she was pouring out over here saying, you whiners! Uh, but it, you can hear anything you like when, you, when you're deaf. Um, so, yeah. Any, any clapping or cheering or anything that you want to do uh, as I raise a good point, you need to do it loud, all right, just so I can hear that you're doing it. So we're coming towards the end of our uh, Movement and Multiplication series. Uh, we've got two weeks left today and next week. And it's been a brilliant series. We've had a great two and a half months. We've been on a real journey looking at um, the birth and the growth of the early church in the book of Acts. And uh, I was saying earlier, it's really, I feel like it's paralleled with our journey here, BCC, in this church. We've had so much going on. It's been a most exciting uh, series and and, uh, exciting time of year. We've had 30 commitments or recommitments to to Christ, which is fantastic. We had a baptism service last week where a number of people got baptised. We've actually, we're talking about it in our staff meeting this week, and we realised we've got at least half a dozen, I think Vlad was saying close to 10 people, ready to be baptised in the next one. Already, so we're looking at the middle of January to have another baptism service, and I want to have these as often as we can. I think that would be really good. So there's transformation happening. We've had the equip courses running. We've had the leadership courses running as well at this time. We had a great partnership morning, and and just this really feels like there's, there's hope in the house. There's change. There's people coming in, and God is really moving. Um, last week, Mark took us through chapter 11 of the book of Acts, and he was talking about how Barnabas. The, which, whose name means a son of encouragement, was there and he was encouraging the church in Antioch. And he, got, he went to Tarsus and brought Saul back from Tarsus to Antioch uh, in order to help uh, teach and help grow the church there. And we all know that Saul became absolutely instrumental in the growth of the early church and the spread of the gospel. And in fact, in writing uh, most of the New Testament that we have, uh, all because of that one decision, that, that stepping out in faith that Barnabas was prepared to do. Um, but now, though, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he brings the story back to Jerusalem. He wants to let us know what's going on here, where uh, Peter is. Now, before, the last time we encountered Peter, he'd just come back from his visit to Cornelius, and God had messed with his head, hadn't he? God had really messed with him. God gave him this vision of um, you know, uh, uh, this new idea that the, the gospel message, salvation, was not just for the Jews, it was for everyone. And that really challenged Peter's thinking, but he was willing to allow that challenge to, to mature in him and then multiply through him. And we've, we've had that kind of expression, God's godly vision messes with us, it matures in us and it multiplies through us. So now Peter's in Jerusalem and along with the rest of the church, They are spreading the gospel. They're teaching everyone. They're just telling everybody about who Jesus is and the life-transforming power of of what he's done for them. 
And, and this is where we come to because Peter's doing this. The established church, the, the Jews, the establishment, they're getting a bit angry. They don't like the fact that Peter is preaching the message of Jesus uh, to all the people. And so um, this is where we're up to. The beginning of chapter 12, we're going to read uh, from verse 1, uh, the first few verses. So it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Now wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now, at the age of 21, I left university. I'd been studying uh, performing arts and I realised quite quickly I need to get a job. I need to get work to pay off some of my debts. I'm getting married next year and so it was time to get married. So I'm 21 years old. I've just left college, it was around about five years ago or so, Um, and I found full-time work with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Did anybody laugh then? I I found full-time work with the Royal Bank of Scotland in their brand new um, telephone banking centre in Blackfriars in London. And for the first couple of weeks we had training. Now most of this training was all about communication, effective ways of communicating over the telephone. And... Um, kind of part of this communication training was telling us to use positive language. Positive language, what they called using sexy words instead of non-sexy words. So the word no was definitely a non-sexy word. You don't say no to people. Um, And the word but was another sexy word. You have to use the word however because it's softer and and it's a much nicer word to hear. And they would tell us to use phrases like, certainly I can help you with that. And so let me just describe a situation. Somebody, an angry customer would phone up because the bank had overcharged them for something and they'd say, I demand to have my money refunded. And I on the other end of the phone would say, well, certainly I can help you with that. However. (laughs) And then I would tell them in the most positive language possible why there was no way on God's green earth that that was going to happen. There are some brilliant passages and scriptures in the Bible that use this word but. Now as I said they thought it was a non-sexy word. I don't think the writers of the Bible knew that. Um, But actually it's a powerful word. It's a big big 
word. And, and I was thinking about this, and um, we're going to look at this word, but today. It has such power. And in fact, I was thinking of calling this message, Big Butts of the Bible. <laughs> but I thought that might take your imagination to a place where I didn't want it to go to. So I, I scrapped that idea. Um, but we're going to have a look at some of these uh, great butts. No. Uh, let me give you some examples. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this, For I am the least of the apostles, this is Paul writing, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Then in Psalm, my flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then in Ephesians, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. There is loads and loads of examples of this in Scripture. You should look them up. They're, they're absolutely brilliant. And so on, on one hand, you've got these, these truths, if you like, these weighty concepts, a premise. This is how it is. This is the struggle that I'm in. This is the mess I've made of my life. This is, this is the sin I've committed this is where it's all gone wrong. And, um, and then at the other end, we have the positiveness. And, and I want you to imagine, in your mind, a seesaw. You all know what a seesaw is. It's a thing you find on children's playgrounds, a kind of a plank of wood that kind of goes up and down like this. Well, we had one when I was growing up as a little child. We had one in the park near our house. And we would often go there to play. And my older sister, she was five years older than me, she would invite me over to come and play on the seesaw. It's not the kind of thing you can play on by yourself. So she would come and invite me over and I would sit on one end here and she would sit on the other end. But she was five years older than me. And so she would sit on the end and I would go up in the air. Now normally, honestly, you use your legs and you push yourself up and down. But she didn't do that. She would just sit there looking at me. Up and I'd be sat at the other end, quite young, getting quite frightened because I'm quite high up and my legs can't reach the ground and and I'm feeling a bit hopeless. I'm feeling a bit stranded, stuck looking down at my sister who's got this big grin on her face, the evil woman that she is. No, she's not. She's not. She's, she's lovely. You're lovely, Katie. Um, but back then, she had some evil stuff in her. And she was looking at me. She's got all the power over me, leaving me stuck up in the air, stranded. And that's what it's like. We're at one end of the seesaw and the weight of all these negative truths is at the other end, leaving us helpless, leaving us dangling, leaving us without any hope. And we're just staring at them and it's an impossible situation. But God, but God. It's not even that God comes and balances it out. I remember when I was at the park and I was sat there on the seesaw uh, high up in the air, my dad would look over and see what was going on and he'd come and sort it out. But he wouldn't come and tell my sister to get off the seesaw. All he would do would come and sit on my end of the seesaw with me. And now he's heavier than my sister. And so she now goes up in the air. And now this is a fun game. Now I'm looking at her stuck up in the air. Um, and I've got the power. Mm. So God doesn't come along and balance it out. God comes and he sits with us at our end of the seesaw. And all those other weighty things just go shooting off out of existence. They no longer matter anymore because of God. But God. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am no longer under law, but I'm under grace. But God is my strength. But God demonstrates his love for me. But God makes me alive with Christ. And Luke, he uses the same concept in today's passage. In verse 5, he says this. So, Peter was kept in prison. That's the negative truth. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That but there is so loaded. There's so much power in that. It all looks hopeless. James is dead. Peter is in prison. Herod is determined that he's going to make an example of Peter. He's put 16 guards there, for goodness sake. Peter's got no chance. He knows that before the the apostles have somehow got out of prison and he's like, I'm not taking any chances this time. So on the one hand, we've got Herod's ambitions. We've got the 16 guards. We've got the fact that James has been executed. We've got the walls of the prison. We've got the hatred of the Jews. We've got the authority of Rome all at one end of the seesaw. And you might think, well, Peter's up there and he's helpless and he's looking down at all these truths and there's no hope. It looks hopeless. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, the word used there, earnestly, is the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's desperate before God. He's laying it all out. There's a deep agony of the soul. It's like... When you're, the company that you work for is making redundancies and you're standing outside the boardroom waiting to be called in to hear your fate. It's like a friend or a member of your family getting the results from the, from the hospital and there isn't a cure. It's desperation. It's like going to have your 20-week scan and being told that the child in you has a genetic disorder and there's a good chance they're not going to survive the birth. It's desperation. And you cry out. And you're left on the seesaw of life, just dangling, feeling helpless, looking at all the weight on the other end. And the only option open to you is to call your dad over. You're going to call your father over. And often we don't even have a clue what we're going to pray for. We don't even have a clue what those words, what words we're going to use. But we know that by simply having a conversation with God about those weights, things can start to sort themselves out. Simply by magnifying God, all those weighty things get smaller and smaller and smaller. The higher we place God, the lower those things become. And we need to remember that there are no big miracles and there are no small miracles for God there are just miracles there are just miracles it doesn't matter how big you think it is it's just a miracle and God deals in miracles that's his currency he does it all the time now I uh, realize that sometimes we pray for things and we get the answer that we don't expect or even the answer that we're hoping for and most of you know I pray, you know, and have been praying for my uh, he- healing for my hearing, and my family prays all the time. And um, one day, maybe my hearing will be restored. But 
God has a plan. And that might include restoring it. But whatever happens, I know it's definitely going to bring him glory. Whatever. And whenever I come before God, he just gently reminds me and says, look, yeah, your hearing's not right, but look at your life. Look at what you've got. You lead worship, for goodness sake. You're a musician. You're deaf, you're a musician. A good musician. (laughs) You lecture in music composition at university, for goodness sake. You lecture in music ear training, for goodness sake. I teach people how to hear music. There's irony there. And God just, it just says, just gently reminds me, you, you know, I, you're in this. And so Joseph talking to his brothers when he says to them, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And so what looks like a difficult situation, actually God's going to use for his glory and for my blessing, which he does. Now I'm pretty sure that the church would have been praying for James, just like they're now praying for Peter. And we know that James was executed What's that about? Well, we know that the the prayer wasn't answered probably in the way that they hoped, but we can be 100% convinced that God was glorified and the word of God spread because of what happened and that James was absolutely comfortable with the outcome. We're going to talk about that in a little while. One thing that he didn't do, James being executed, he didn't stop the church from praying. They're now praying again for Peter. They didn't say, oh, this prayer thing's not working. Why don't we do something? We're try something different. They kept praying for Peter. And, you know, they're just moments away from having their prayers answered in the most miraculous way possible. And I'm not exactly sure what words the, pre- that the church was using in their prayers. And if you read on in the passage, we see that actually the church is surprised when Peter turns up at their door. When Peter gets free, the church is like, what? They're astonished, it tells us. They go, well, how did that happen? Well, you were praying. (laughs) How did that happen? Um, And Peter gets his freedom. And Luke definitely makes the connection between the church praying and Peter getting his freedom. There is a connection there because we know that prayer is where The the power is. So what are you believing for? What are you praying about right now? Keep going. You're moments away from God answering your prayer. You might feel like you're at the top of that seesaw, looking down at the weight, but God is listening to your prayers and he's walking across the playground right now, ready to sit on your side of the seesaw with you, ready to make a complete difference, to transfer the weight from all those things to him. And it's not about getting the outcome we want. We don't pray simply to get the outcome we want. It's about deepening our relationship with a father who loves us, with a father who is a good Good Father. And what happens when we realise this? What happens when we realise that actually God is a good, good Father and that I am loved by him? My identity is not in all those weighty things, but it's in the fact that God is a good Father to me and he loves me. It's not something that we can just go, okay, that's great, and just move on with our life. There needs to be a change. God is changing our circumstances, what do we do then? Well, we have an obligation. We have an obligation. When we realise that, once we believe that, it changes things. We have an obligation to live differently. Uh, the, uh, The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. It's not to the flesh to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We are the children of God. Our identity is a child of God and all the blessings and all the inheritance that comes with that. And we need to fully understand and we need to accept this position in life. I know that so many of us, we kind of have a head knowledge of this. We're taught this, we read it and we, we kind of grasp it to a level, but we don't fully live that out. We don't fully live that life of power, understanding the weight that is with us. And we don't just have an ability to live in freedom. It's not an ability. It's an authority. It's almost an obligation. We have the obligation to live by the Spirit in the freedom that he's already paid for. We should be living transformed lives. Now today in this message, I've only got two points. And that's my first point. We believe, okay, to believe. We believe in this truth. We believe in this truth. That prayer, we pray and God changes circumstances. God leads us to prayer and he leads us to new thinking and a transformed life. Which leads me to my second point. And for that we're going to go back to the very first verse of the chapter that we read. Verse top, uh, chapter 12. And it says this. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Intending to persecute them. And I wonder. What comes into your mind when you think about that, uh, those uh, four words. Belonged to the church. Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. What image does that conjure up? Maybe for you, belonging to the church means turning up on a Sunday and attending a service. Maybe belonging to the church for you means uh, attending uh, Sunday services and maybe the prayer meeting every so often as well. Maybe belonging to the church means for you um, coming to the services, going to the prayer meeting, attending a small group, giving money in the offering, you know, giving your tithe. And all those things are great. All those things we should do. But I want us to consider today what belonging to the church meant for the early church, for these guys that we're looking at in, in the book of Acts. What did belonging to the church mean for them? Yeah. Now at the university where I teach, um, in the teaching rooms there are these big posters on the wall, uh, dotted all, all everywhere. And these posters are photos of past students playing their instruments, playing the drums or the guitar or singing or whatever. And next to their photo, there is a, a quote from them talking about their ambition. And so we have things like this. We have, uh, Richard, graduate, my ambition is to wake up every day knowing I'm going to make music that day. Or there's another poster that says, Ella, uh, graduate, my ambition is to tour the world performing my own songs. And then another one, it says Vicky, and there's a picture of Vicky there, and it says, Graduate, my ambition is to tour with different artists and encourage more girls to play the drums. And as I was preparing for this message, message, I was looking at these pictures, and it just challenged me. It challenged me about these guys with their, their ambition. And it got me thinking, what was the ambition of these guys in the early church, these pioneers? Their prospects were looking pretty bleak. They were looking forward to um, persecution, to prison, to torture, maybe even to death. What was their ambition? Well, I think it was clear. Their ambition was to see God's kingdom advance. 
to see God's kingdom move forward. Their ambition was to see the gospel of Jesus spread, not just in their local community, but further and further afield. Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. They were fulfilling God's commission. And despite the opposition, their ambition was to see Jesus' name glorified and life transformed. So if they had their picture on the walls of their house, maybe it would read something like this. Mary disciple my ambition is to see my community transformed through a relationship with Jesus maybe it would say John disciple my ambition is to help build a church that has the love of God at its center and to spread that love to the far corners of the empire maybe it would have Peter disciple my ambition is to see everything changed All nations, Jews and Gentiles, experiencing the forgiveness of sin that is possible through Jesus' death. And then James. Maybe there's a picture of James there. And the quote, my ambition is to give my life to further the kingdom of God. So then that same statement becomes a question for me and becomes a question for you. Adam Bird, disciple, my ambition is, do I even have a kingdom ambition? Do I belong to the same church that Peter did and James did and John did and Mary did and all these people? Do I belong to the same church? I'm convinced I do. I think we belong to the same church as they did. Do I have the same kingdom ambition that these guys had? I'm convinced that I should. Scripture tells us that these people belonged to the church and we can belong to a church that has the same unity, the same power, the same passion and the same love for each other and for our wider community. So what does it look like for us to belong to the church? Well, here in the West at this time, we don't really experience kind of uh, death or imprisonment But we do have a threat. And the threat that we have to live with is lethargy. Sitting back on what we have. Sitting back in our comfort. And there's a threat that we miss out on the call of God. God calls us and we don't hear or we don't respond in the way that we should. And we miss out. There's a threat of missing out on kingdom opportunities that God is constantly sending us our way. That's the threat that we have to live with. And we have a call and we have a mission just the same as that early church did. Before he died, Jesus made this statement. He said, a new command I give you. A new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the question becomes, how did Jesus love us? Well, We know exactly how Jesus loved us. He gave up his life for us. That was his love for us. And he says, you must love one another in the same way. This is his new command to us. And guess what? The early church, I think they got it. I think they understood that. That love for each other meant laying down their life for each other and for the call. So how do we lay down our lives? Here and now, we're not really required to actually physically give up our lives. There are people around the world that do. 
But here and now, that's not us. So what do we do? Well, I think, I guess it comes down to our time, as Matt was saying earlier, and our possessions. Those things that we try and cling to. Those things that we try and hold on to. Because they are precious. And God might be saying to us, lay those down. Don't hold them so tightly. Our wealth, our possessions, our money, our things, these are the way that we lay down our lives. Now some of us here today can probably say, yes, we do that. I do that. That's how I lay down my life. I give up that. And it goes against everything that the world says is the right way to live. It really does. And if you, if you step out in that way, the moment you start swimming against that current, you'll find that there'll be people in your lives, good people, people who love you, family and friends, who will say to you, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Are you sure there's a heavy risk involved? Are you sure that's, that's wise? And I know this because we've had this in our own lives. When we opened our house uh, to people to come and live with us, including strangers who we didn't know, we didn't know good people and family would say to us, are you sure that's the right thing to do? Are you sure? There's risks attached. And it could all go horribly wrong. And guess what? Sometimes it did go wrong. Often it went wrong. Does it mean it was the wrong thing? Do I have any regrets? Not on your life. No regrets. Because even when it goes wrong, it's going right. Because we're doing the right thing. Most of you know that when I was... Growing up, uh, my parents uh, opened their home as well to, uh, to prisoners, in fact. And we have lots and lots of prisoners who would come through our home and stay with us for months, weeks, and even years. And lots of people would say to my parents, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Having these people who, you know, they're coming out of prison, they're looking to make a new life, they've got nowhere to go. Are you sure it's the right thing? You've got, you've got five young children in your home. Is that really wise? Is it the right thing to do? From an earthly perspective, no. But actually, we're not talking about an earthly perspective. We're talking about a kingdom perspective. And when you're in God's will, absolutely, it's the right thing to do. Did it go wrong? Many, many times it went wrong. My mum and dad gave up so much for that. And even when it went wrong, it went right. Because it was the right thing. And we look around and we see people doing these things, living their life in that way, in such a sacrificial way. And we think to ourselves, gosh, they are super Christians. They are the ultra elite of Christians. They are proper, full-on disciples. And they're not. They're not super Christians. They're not super disciples. They're just Christians. Because that's what a Christian looks like. That's actually what a normal Christian looks like. Is someone who does that. That's what it, that should be the norm. It shouldn't be the exceptional. It should be how we live. That's what we're taught. That's what the early church did. Living sacrificially. So what is God asking of us at this time? What's God asking of you? Are we prepared to live the life that the early church lived? Putting it all on the line for the sake of the mission. Whatever that looks like. I love what it says about Peter. He's waiting in prison to be executed for his trial. And he's looking at the weight of circumstances against him. And he is aware that Herod's soldiers are going to come in just a few hours and take him off to be tried and executed. So you'd be forgiven for thinking, actually, that Peter has got a lot on his mind. 
You'd be forgiven for thinking that Peter is thinking about what's going to happen come the morning. You'd be forgiven for thinking that maybe Peter's pacing his cell. Maybe he's beseeching God, God, bring me out of this mess. But actually, what do we find Peter doing in his cell between two soldiers, two chains on him? He's fast asleep. He's sound asleep. He's not just asleep. It says that the angel arrives in the cell and he's still asleep. It says as a bright light appears and fills the cell, he's still asleep. The angel has to prod him to wake him up. Going to hit him in his side. It's time to get up, Peter. He's like, oh, what? Oh, okay. And uh, Peter is fast asleep. He's got such a peace on his mind. And I don't think the reason that Peter's asleep and his peace and his confidence because he knows he's going to be rescued. He doesn't know that. When it happens, we read that he thinks he's, seeing a, he's having a dream. He thinks he's in a vision. He doesn't think that. But what he does know is that he is slap, bang, right in the middle of God's will. And he's prepared for anything. If God wants to release him, glory be to God. If God wants to take his life at this point, glory be to God. There's peace in that. And what I have found, and what no many of you have found, is that the most difficult circumstances in God's will is far more comfortable and has far more peace than being outside of God's will in whatever comfort you can humanly put around yourself actually it doesn't really matter you'll be at far at peace in whatever difficult circumstances if you're in God's will doing what he's asking you to do that's a brilliant example right there the peace that comes by faith and let me just take this analogy slightly further this morning We're coming towards the end of my message. But I just want to ask you a question. Maybe you're asleep right now. Maybe you're in God's will and you're in a time of peace and you're you're sleeping. But possibly this morning God's prodding you. God is prodding you saying, oh, wake up. I've got a plan. I've got a plan. There's a world that needs to be changed. You're going to be part of it. You're going to be part of my plan to change the world. You know what? If God's on that seesaw with us, we can change the world. We can. We can. Just like the early church. There's no difference between what they had and what we've got. We're the same church. We can change things. We can be transformed and bring transformation. There's a big adventure on our doorstep. So the question is, what is your ambition? What is your ambition? Do we truly belong to the same church? Do we truly belong to this church? Do we believe that God has a mission for us and a call for each of us? Is my ambition for myself in line with God's ambition for me? And what I want to do is for us to, as we come to the end of this message, is just take a few moments just to think about that. To maybe have a good look inside to try and hear that voice that voice of God who might be saying to us right now get up get up there's a mission there's a call there's change I'm about to do something and I need you you're involved the church the church doesn't have a mission God's mission has a church. We are the church that should be ready to fulfill this mission that God has established. And God's got a plan and he wants to use you, 
all of us, all of us, in whatever capacity we have. So let's just close our eyes and let's just take a couple of minutes just to take a good look inwards and listen to God's voice. Maybe your kingdom ambition has been a bit fuzzy for some time. But right now, God is starting to sharpen that vision up. Maybe this morning we've realised that God is doing something and that realisation comes not just with an ability but with the authority and with an obligation to stand out on that. And maybe you're wondering, what can I do? Matt brought those great words from that carol. Give my heart. Bring what you've got. God's put things inside you already. That's what you bring. Get involved. Don't sit back on life. Don't surround yourself with human comfort. It's, it's, it's false. It's not real. It's, you won't get the peace from that. Real, true comfort, comfort and peace comes from stepping out in that call, making yourself uncomfortable. It's a paradox. But that's where you'll experience true peace get involved don't sit in the stands get on the pitch get involved maybe you're here today and you feel that God is calling you into a relationship with him maybe you've never made that decision maybe you haven't started that journey and every week we like to give people an opportunity to begin the journey and maybe you're saying to yourself, I don't really know who this Jesus is. There's something in my heart. I'm something stirring within me. Don't ignore that feeling. But maybe you think, I don't know who Jesus is. Well, let me tell you who Jesus is. These are the words that Paul used to people who felt the same way. People who weren't sure who Jesus was. Paul said to them in the book of, in the book of Colossians, he said, Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. Jesus is the visible image. He's the reality of God. He's the fullness of God. God puts all his fullness into Jesus. And Jesus came. And all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And all things hold together in him. Jesus is the head of the body, his church. And it goes on to say in verse 21, once you were alienated, once you were separated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil, evil behaviour, that is all the weight on the one end of the seesaw. That's all the stuff that we've done and we know that is wrong 
and we look at that weight and we're dangling and we're helpless and we say to ourselves, there's no way that I can have a relationship with a holy and righteous God because of all these things, because of all that weight. But then Paul goes on to say, but, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is God getting on your end of the seesaw with you and saying all, that, all those other things, they don't matter no more. Jesus has, has sorted those out, out and now you're reconciled and now you have freedom. That's the truth. And that's what the early church gave their life for. And that's what we should give our life for. That's the gospel. Maybe if you're ready to begin the journey today with Jesus, I'm just going to pray a short, simple prayer. And I want you to pray this with me in your heart. Just do that now. Just bow your heads. Father God, I know that I've messed up so often in my life. And I feel your call right now. And I want to start this journey with you. I want to start this journey that will take me to the, through the end of my days here on earth, but then also into an eternity with you forever, God. Because I know you're calling me and I know you have a plan. Jesus, I put my life in your hands and I'm sorry for all the things that I've done wrong. Thank you for your forgiveness. Amen.